It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. This is the hour of doom. And bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast. A moment of morality in a momentous world. Well, I just made that up. <laughs> Very uh, good. Thank you, thank you. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones co-founder of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And here is... Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife and the other co author and co-founder of all those things that you mentioned <laughs> that's right and you're on top of that the, a purveyor of some of the highest quality medical kits on the planet not why, to mention why thank you not to mention the hostess with the mostest the goddess with that's the hottest <laughs> that's all i gotta say you're sweet she is absolutely Get, becoming a little blind but oh. sweet <laughs> <laughs> well we're going to tell you a lot of things we talk about basics we talk about the conventional wisdom we talk um, also, hmm, about the unconventional medical wisdom. We'll go as far as we have to to make your family medically self-reliant in times of trouble. But before we start, you better listen to this. All right. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice or anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. You get the feeling that she's sort of sick and tired of no. reading the disclaimer? No, I just don't want them to have to listen to it every single time. I know, but they have to so that they know to I seek know. modern and standard <laughs> medical care. All right. So don't listen to us, not one word, but one day there might be a time when you might get a little something out of what we talk about. And our job is to make you an effective medic for your family if things go south. Hey, I just want to let people know that we're putting up an ambitious series of videos on Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy's YouTube channel. That's Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy's YouTube channel. The latest of which is an update of a classic video we did, gosh, close to a decade ago. And that is on how to suture. So I actually take a pig's foot and I actually show you how to suture and stuff like that. And, and before that, there are a couple of videos Amy's done that talk about how to properly sanitize a wound before you actually consider closing it and how do you uh, prepare the skin and do things so that the chances for infection are at their absolute lowest so make sure you subscribe to dr bones nurse amy's youtube channel so you don't miss any of these important videos we've got lots more coming and we have gosh two or three hundred video other videos to watch if you've got the time we're going to talk about COVID a little bit, but not, can't all be about COVID. We have to talk about other stuff too, so we will be discussing other issues. Uh, I do think it's a good idea, however, to keep a running update of how our views are evolving based on what seems to be happening these days. So let me throw a few stats at you, tell you what they mean, if we believe them, and how it affects or should affect people's activities. So uh, right now we're at close to 20 million cases worldwide and the truth is it's probably 200 million 400 million something much much higher than that and we have to realize that not everybody has gotten tested and you may think that we're testing nobody 
around here, but we've tested more people than any other nation on the globe, including nations that have more than a billion people. So this is something that we have been doing. We've instituted travel bans before other people, but still you can't stop more people testing positive as time goes on. It's just not possible to do so unless you put everybody in their own personal bubble. They're eventually going to have these things pass through. You can talk about masks, you can talk about social distancing, and I think all these things are great, but they're mostly helpful to delay or flatten the curve so that the medical infrastructure doesn't get overwhelmed. Now, speaking of testing, the tests we have at present just aren't that accurate. The governor of Ohio, for example, tested positive for COVID in the morning a couple of days ago. Then he tested negative that night, and then the next morning he tested negative. That was crazy. And, and just goes to show that we just haven't had time to develop a reliable test. And all the other statistics, all those statistics just don't have the meaning that they should without one, right? Exactly. So you have to realize that some people, some countries aren't testing at all, like China probably. Uh, other countries are using tests that are different than ours. Yep. And then maybe, I don't know if they're more effective, more effective or less effective, more reliable, less reliable, who knows. But it's not a worldwide consensus on what test you should be using. So what can I say? These numbers are what they are, at least reported so far. But the truth is, is that I think because we have so many mild cases, so many asymptomatic cases, that's probably 10 or 20 times off probably by a multiple of 10 or 20 for sure. Now, in the United States, we've had about 150,000 deaths or so in which COVID is somewhere on the death certificate as a cause or contributing factor. And I mention it that way, not that people have died of COVID because it's not what took people to the brink of death, just the straw that broke the camel's back. Let's take the case of Herman Cain, the former presidential candidate. He just passed away, they reported, from COVID last week. Well, in 2006, Herman Cain was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer that had gone to his liver. He was given a 30% chance of five-year survival. He underwent surgery and chemotherapy following the diagnosis, after which the cancer was subsequently reported to be in remission. Well, the news recently reported that he died of COVID, but really it was just the last straw. He was supposed to die before the year 2011. He died in mid-2020. And so it was just a tiny little push that maybe took him over the brink. Right. That makes sense. He had a weakened system from the cancer. We don't know how it had come back. We, they certainly didn't report, oh, well, it's all over this and it's in this organ and that organ. We didn't hear anything. That's his private health information. So the only thing they could get a hold of was that he happened to have COVID. And so that's what they're claiming in the headline. That's what he died of. But you're absolutely right. If his immune system was down, maybe he was back on chemo. We have no idea. He could have been completing his 10th chemo treatment of the year, and then he got COVID. He's on chemo. His immune system is weakened. He gets COVID, and then he has nothing to fight with. So we just don't know what his health status was prior to the COVID. All I can say is that I wish that I could last 14 years after a diagnosis of metastatic stage four that colon cancer. That is incredible. It Absolutely really is. amazing. Really well, God bless him. Rest in I peace. I know.
Now, if you're blaming the current administration for not being ready, you can blame the previous administration as well, and the one before that, and the one before that, with regards to readiness for uh, pandemic issues. Not even Ebola in 2014, for example, with a 40% death rate in Africa, got President Obama to strengthen our national stockpile of masks and other pandemic supplies. President Bush, before him, hardly took notice of it when, when SARS, Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome, was first discovered in 2003. So if you're blaming someone with orange skin, it's your own personal bias and just not objective. Now, it's important to know that figures relating to numbers of severe cases have changed over the course of the pandemic. Early on, the pandemic alarmed everyone because 10 to 15% of people who got COVID wound up in the hospital listed as serious or critical. At present, however, only 1% of active cases are being listed that way, and that only includes the documented positive cases. Now think about all the asymptomatic cases and all the very mild cases that aren't even getting tested, and the death rate and the serious or critical rate even drops much more. So what's all this talk then about the lack of ICU beds? I just want people to know that ICU beds are usually about 70% occupied before COVID, before any particular pandemic or medical emergency arises that causes mass casualties, let's say. So this is something that people need to know is that only the largest ICUs have any significant surplus of beds, and those, usually, about 50% of them have four or more that are available, and the rest have less. And so it doesn't take much to actually fill up ICUs. And so if somebody says, well, the ICU is being full, doesn't take a lot of cases to actually do that. So it's important to, important to know that. Now, I'm not trying to downplay things. If you do want to make COVID sound like a a real society ender, you just have to look at the closed cases. In other words, those that have either recovered or who have died. The case is closed one way or another. You're okay or you're not okay. That figure is at 5.5%. Sounds terrible until you realize that in the mid-spring, that number was about 21%. So big difference from going from 21% to 5.5%. So that means that the death rates have significantly dropped with regards to COVID. Now, for young folks, COVID just isn't very dangerous at all, except for very rare cases. As you move into middle age, it gets worse, of course, especially if you consider 55 to 64 years of age to be middle-aged. Uh, seems like 60 is the new 40. I don't know <laughs> what it is, but they've included 55 to 64 as middle age. I don't think so. I think that's sort of a older folk Oh, kind no, of demographic. don't say that. That's right. Everyone's getting closer to that age. No, yes. we're going we're gonna to keep that in the middle age, honey. Right, and, and it's even much less the death rate if, the cutoff, if you cut off the death rate at 54. The U.S. percentage is about 18 for 35 to 64, and that's higher than the world in general. For young people, young children, let's put it that way, right. the death rates for influenza are actually higher than those for COVID-19, even this year. Even today, the statistics regarding the elderly, however, are pretty scary. And if you're over 65, it's wise to wear a mask, especially in areas where you can't socially distance. Now, having said that, if you're outdoors and can stay more than six feet away from other folks, say you're riding a bike or walking a lonely trail or anywhere you don't stop and talk to others, just walk on by or stay on the other side of the street. 
Well, you don't have to wear a mask for that. The viral load in the atmosphere in and of itself just is not that high. Otherwise, a COVID infection rate would be 100%, right? And so far, I haven't seen it have uh, wings. There you go. It's not flying. There you go. It may <laughs> float around for a couple hours and then... That's, right. that's about it. Right. So those people that are jogging by themselves or riding a bike or a, on a trail in the park and they're wearing a mask, boy, oh boy, that's a little silly. You really don't have to do this and you shouldn't shame other people for not wearing a mask in those settings. Mm-hmm. Now, albeit the death rate is worse in the elderly, the, even those over 85 years of age can survive COVID-19. People over 85 have a 10% chance of dying. That sounds terrible until you realize that That means 90% of COVID patients over 85 survive. You can be 90, get COVID, and still have a 90% chance of beating it. So am I telling you that COVID-19 is a nothing burger? No, its death toll is worse than the seasonal flu. And it's at least, well, at least, if not more, contagious. It is a very contagious thing. A lot of people are going to get it. Luckily, most cases are mild or asymptomatic, and the percentage of those people getting very sick are smaller and smaller as time goes on. But it's scary enough for us old folks to be especially careful about it, at least for now. Here's something. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced Tuesday that the country has approved the coronavirus vaccine, despite not having completed the clinical trials to determine its efficacy and safety. It was developed at Moscow's Gamaleva Institute, The vaccine is called Sputnik 5, a little dig at the Americans because Sputnik was the first satellite and actually beat the Americans into space. The Russians beat the Americans into space with the first satellite. Well, Sputnik 5 has not yet undergone phase three of testing, which is a key month-long trial, months-long trial, involving administering a vaccine to a large group of people that can reveal side effects and things like that. Now, Russia has not published any scientific data on its vaccine testing. Sputnik 5 is not among the eight that are currently undergoing phase three trials that we know about. Putin, however, calls the vaccine quite effective and says it has passed all necessary tests and that one of his two daughters actually has been vaccinated. He spoke of Sputnik 5 as a point of pride for the country at a time when laboratories around the world are racing to develop a coronavirus vaccine. He called it Sputnik yeah, Sputnik is basically the first satellite into space. I know. And it's a point of pride for the Russians because they beat the Americans into space. Yes. So they, the, satellite, it was the first right. satellite into space was made by Russia. Uh, Statistic-wise, uh, Russia has reported 900,000 coronavirus cases and 15,000 cases of deaths so far. Now, that's way less than 1%. So either it's... True that what I'm saying that the that the current strain of COVID-19, at least in Russia, is mm-hmm. not very dangerous and very lethal. Right. Or they're counting deaths in an entirely different way that we do. Which could be. Which right. could absolutely be some kind of political agenda. Now, there are a lot of treatments and vaccines in the development pop- pipeline right now besides the Russian one. And as, as a matter of fact, as, uh, as of last week, there were 315 treatments in clinical trials and 202 vaccines. 202 vaccines. Wow. But what, Somebody wants to get rich. <laughs> all right. I, I, I'll tell you that much. Yes. Buy, buy stock in 202 companies. Um, but what do clinical trials actually mean? These are experiments that are designed to check out new treatment and prevention strategies. There are up to four phases to complete 
before a drug or vaccine goes to market. And oftentimes a fourth or fifth post-market evaluation after approval from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And they define the phases of clinical trials as starting with a phase zero. Phase zero is a lot of preliminary stuff. It involves the review of animal studies, uh, uh, if a particular drug or, or vaccine cures or prevents viruses in, I don't know, mice, or maybe uh, tests in test tubes or in petri dishes. Does it work in, in tiny amounts? I mean, they usually use tiny amounts of the drug to begin with. Uh, mo honestly, most of the trials for COVID, because of the uh, emergency nature of the need for a treatment or a vaccine, are speeding through or bypassing this phase and going to phase one. Now, I've, I've talked about all the different types of treatments and, uh, in previous podcasts. I hope you will check those out because there are inexpensive treatments that are on, on the market, uh, inexpensive strategies that you can use. But I just want to let people know that we have talked about those before. I'm not talking about them today. That's not the topic. Phase one clinical trials. In, in that phase, researchers test an experimental drug or treatment in a small group of people for the first time. The researchers evaluate the treatment safety, determine a safe dosage range, and start to identify side effects. So the first time they actually get to, to use it on people is phase one. Phase two, well, when you get to phase two, the experimental drug or treatment is given to larger groups of people to see if it's actually effective. So they're looking for side effects and, and safety in phase one, phase two. They're looking for effectiveness, but they also further evaluate its safety as more people are being tested. In phase three, the experimental drug or treatment is given to large groups of people. And this is what the Russians have bypassed. Researchers can confirm effectiveness and monitor side effects if you get a large enough group of people so that you can sort of compare it to the general population. You can also compare it to commonly used treatments that are in place. Now, there's not a lot of commonly used treatments in place for COVID-19 right now, but this phase three trial will help collect information that allows the experimental drug or treatment to be used safely and to be determined whether it's a better treatment than what's available out there. As trials progress from two to three, studies become what we call randomized. That means who gets the experimental drug and who gets the standard treatment or placebo is determined randomly, supposedly. They are also designed to be what we call double-blind. Neither the patient or the researchers has any idea or should have any idea what treatment is being used in any particular case. That sometimes does not happen, and so that is sometimes an issue with regards to the effectiveness or the uh, uh, reliability of these studies results. Now, phase four occurs after FDA approval. Once a drug is F FDA approved, they still conduct studies on it to determine whether there are more risks or benefits or, and the best method of using it for a particular treatment or medication in tons of people as tons of people are beginning to get the medication. So imagine what, what would happen if the drug treatment is actually approved by the FDA or a vaccine is approved by the FDA, they're going to be doing tests on millions and millions of people, most likely to determine if there's something else. They also can determine if there is another use for the drug, some off-label uses, like we have with the anti-malarial drug um, hydroxyquinolone, uh, mm -hmm. hydroxychloroquine, excuse mm -hmm. me. 
The hydroxychloroquine, for a period of time, was considered to be acceptable to use off-label. It still is used off-label by uh, quite a number of doctors. They just can't use it in hospitals and things like that. That wouldn't be the first time that something like that happens. Uh, we had a drug when I practiced obstetrics years ago, and Amy practiced obstetrics, that was called Ritadrine. And Ritadrine was a drug originally treated to treat, originally developed to treat asthma, but was later found to slow or stop premature labor. Actually, for a period of time, was used in obstetrics to try to stop people from going to premature labor at seven or eight months, give the baby some time, and increase the survival rate. There's another drug called finasteride, otherwise called uh, Propecia or Proscar. That's a drug that was approved in 1992 to decrease the size of people's prostate glands. Older folks get uh, larger prostate glands. It grows over the course of time. It was also found, incidentally, to slow down the balding process in men. And so it actually received FDA approval for male pattern hair loss in 1997. So that was an off-label use that actually became an official use. So those things do happen. Now, there are various kinds of research that can be done to resolve specific medical issues. I just want to talk about that for a second. There are studies on disease treatment or prevention. They evaluate the drugs and vitamins like vitamin D deficiency in COVID, vaccines, other factors maybe that are involved in improving patient outcomes. There's diagnostic research that tries to find the best way to identify or screen for certain issues, medical issues. They were still trying to figure out the right diagnostic test for COVID-19. Other types of research include genetic testing to see who may be prone to develop certain conditions like cancer or uh, I'm going to talk talk about Alzheimer's a little later. There are genes that can if tell you, you whether you have that. Yes, if I'm I remember. <laughs> yes, that was indeed. a joke. There you go. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, uh, and, of course, epidemiological studies to study patterns in certain populations. In other words, is there a ethnic group or a race that doesn't get COVID-19 more often or than another? Or a blood another? type, because they right. have mentioned that um, A, blood yes. type A... Seems to get it more, right? For, oh. some reason, for some reason, tends to have a higher infection rate. That's right, and vitamin D deficiency in African-Americans is much higher than it is in the Caucasian population. So and they're finding out some factors, some things that we certainly didn't know in January. Absolutely. So we're, we're learning a lot about other, th other things that may not be totally directly related to COVID, like vitamin D. It's important to realize that if you're African-American, the melanin in your skin, or if you're Hispanic with darker skin, that melanin pigment actually somehow slows down the absorption of vitamin D in your skin from sun, sunlight. So it's uh, interesting to know that there are a lot of things that we are still learning and we're learning a lot about other things as a result of our concerns about COVID. Now in the news, uh, and there's an ENT doctor named George Dome, D-O-M-B, I think it's Dome, says combining the common antiseptic povidone iodine solution, betadine, with a saline nasal spray is a powerful way to kill coronavirus. He claims that ENT doctors in outbreak areas use it due to their high-risk status. And he has a special formula. You mix half a teaspoon of this 10% povidone iodine solution, betadine, not, by the way, not the soapy scrub. It has to be the solution. With a 44 milliliter spray bottle of saline, sterile saline. Sterile. Nasal I want to make right. sure that you don't put anything up your nose that isn't, 
sterile water or sterile saline. Right, there you go. Yes, absolutely. Even these neti pots should not use anything from the tap. You have got to boil the water. Right. Or Make use, sure it's sterile. Or use something sterile. Absolutely. So the good doctor here says it, uh, that this povidone iodine solution uh, combined with uh, saline nasal spray at about a 1 to 30 ratio kills SARS-CoV-2, that's the virus that causes COVID, 100% in the laboratory, and that is 100% safe. He says he's used it himself personally for years. Now, some may consider it a bunch of hooey, but povidone <laughs> iodine is an antiseptic. It's not an antibiotic, so it does have activity against viruses as well as bacteria. Mm-hmm. It has been used against MRSA as well as in oral preparations in studies on the original SARS virus, swine flu, and others with good effectiveness. Now, there's a large study that's coming out uh, to test medical workers, and they what they did is gave a nasal spray and a gargle of this 10% diluted uh, 1 to 30 uh, betadine solution with sterile nasal spray, and they used it at the start of a shift, during lunch break, and at the end of the shift. First, the nasal spray is sprayed in the nose, two sprays per nostril, and for adequate coverage, they say you should be able to taste the iodine or see it in the back of the throat if you look in a mirror. This is left in place for 30 seconds, then the participant gargles the solution for 30 seconds, and he doesn't have anything to eat or drink by mouth for 30 minutes. Then they're going to see if it gives protection to medical workers that are high risk for infection. So this works, this may work, we don't have results from this official officially as of yet, uh, but Dr. Dome here warns that it doesn't work for about 10, 15, 10 to 15% of the population. You shouldn't use it if you're pregnant, if you're breastfeeding, if you have hyperthyroidism or being treated for thyroid cancer with irradiated iodine or are sensitive, allergic to iodine, uh, or of course on children that are younger than six, he, he recommends. So the important thing is that it has to be diluted properly, one to 30, not the easiest thing to do, so try this at home at your own risk. That's a new low-tech COVID treatment, inexpensive, but there's the latest thing in the high-tech area that is the monoclonal antibody. Monoclonal antibodies are immune system proteins that specifically hone in on a specific target, single target. In coronavirus, it's the spikes that give coronavirus its name. Monoclonal antibodies specifically stick to the spike proteins on the surface coronaviruses that bind to the human cell. If you cover that surface protein, the virus has nowhere to go. So that is an that would be awesome if this thing actually pans out because in contrast to collecting plasma from COVID survivors' blood, monoclonal antibodies are things that can be manufactured in large amounts in a lab. And so right. if it works, you don't have to depend on people actually donating blood. You can make as much of this stuff as you possibly can want to have. That, that's awesome. So I think that's, I think that's pretty good. That would good. be great. All right, so let's get off of COVID for a minute. You know that we are on the expert council of our friend Jack Spirico's Survival Podcast. God, he's got like about 3,000 podcasts up to this point. And uh, we're glad to have uh, the confidence of his listeners as well as our own. Occasionally, we got questions from some of our listeners as well as Jack. So you're always welcome to send one to drbonespodcast.aol.com. And one of the most recent one involves Alzheimer's disease. Here we're going to discuss what happens in Alzheimer's disease and what you can do that might improve brain function. So here we go. This is a letter from Nate. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Nate who writes, I have a family history of dementia. I'm currently 28, so I have a long time before I need to worry about memory loss. 
But what can I do in the meantime that would be preventative? Thanks, Nate. Nate, a lot of folks in the preparedness community are mature enough and prepared enough to have the possibility of reaching their golden years at a time where the new normal causes things to go south fast. That means that the medic has to know the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and have a plan of action to help prevent it or at least slow its progress. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. It's characterized by the accumulation of two types of proteins in the brain, tangles or taw and plaques or amyloid beta. These can be evaluated using blood tests, urine tests, even diagnostic imaging like CT scans, MRIs, or PET scans of the brain can identify them. Now, just because you forgot where you left your car parked doesn't mean you need these tests or have Alzheimer's. That's a common part of aging. If you forgot what a car is, though, or why you're standing in a parking lot, well, that's a different story. Frequent memory loss, confusion about locations, taking longer to accomplish simple, normal tasks, trouble handling money, paying bills, the loss of spontaneity, the loss of mood affect, and personality changes, well, these are all possible signs. Alzheimer's has no official cause, although people with heart disease, diabetes, and certain other issues seem to be more likely to get it. Although 30% of people have genetics that predispose them to Alzheimer's, only 1% have a marker that means they are certain to get it. Many people have suspicious signs for it on imaging or other tests, especially older folks, but seem perfectly fine. Most likely, multiple factors are at play, including genetics, age, medical conditions, and lifestyle. You can't change your age, but you can change your lifestyle. Nate, there's no pill or injection that prevents Alzheimer's at present, but there are a number of ways thought to improve your risk to avoid dementia. Some have more hard scientific data behind them than others, but here goes. Get enough sleep. A good sleep pattern can help prevent Alzheimer's by allowing clearance of amyloid betas from the brain. Seven to eight hours should do it. Engage in regular cardiovascular exercise that elevates your heart rate. That increases blood flow to the brain as well as to the rest of your body. Several studies have found that physical activity reduces cognitive decline. Now you have to keep your mind active. Take a class at a local college, maybe a community center, or online. Do crosswords, word puzzles, or other things to challenge yourself. I do crosswords, and I'm such a badass at them that I do them in pen. It doesn't have to be those kinds of challenges, though. Card games or board games, like Doom and Bloom Survival, will work just fine. Building a piece of furniture, that is also good. Just be creative. Stop smoking. It seems like everything is made better from not smoking. Having oxygen compete with smoke in your lungs means less O2 goes to the brain. Keep track of your medical problems. Obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, all of these things negatively impact your physical, but also your cognitive, your brain health. Take care of your heart and your brain might follow. Avoid injuring yourself. Older folks can have some pretty bad falls. Brain injury can increase your risk of cognitive decline and dementia. Trauma's bad. Just look at Muhammad Ali in his 50s. What a mess he was. Wear a seatbelt and use a helmet when playing contact sports or riding a bike. And don't take up boxing. Get good nutrition. Eating a healthy diet can help reduce the risk of cognitive decline. Although research on diet and cognitive function is limited, certain diets, including ketogenic diets, are thought to decrease the risk of Alzheimer's. The ketogenic diet is a very high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet which has a fasting-like effect bringing the body into a state of ketosis. 
the presence of ketone bodies has a neuroprotective impact on aging brain cells. A ketogenic diet has beneficial effects for enhancing mitochondrial function and cellular metabolism. It's associated with improved brain function in elderly Alzheimer's patients with outcomes dependent on the level and the duration of ketosis. The best results of ketogenic diet are seen in the early cases, however. If keto doesn't work for you, the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet may be an option that has been recommended for many years. Poor mental health is also linked to Alzheimer's. A history of depression is seen in people at increased risk. So seek medical treatment if you have symptoms of depression, anxiety, or other mental health concerns. If you're under stress, staying socially engaged can help maintain brain health. Seek out meaningful social activities. If you like to sing, join the church choir. If you're an animal lover, volunteer at the local shelter. Nate, you've got a long way to go before you're a candidate for Alzheimer's. Me, well, not so much. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, I know you don't have all the medical supplies and personal protection items you'll need in times of trouble. So why not check out our entire line of kits, supplies, and more at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time that we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Join us next time. All right. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.